Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm Teresa Onwemina, your host. I'm super excited to be here today because I have a really great special guest, Dr. Alfred Lee, who's going to introduce himself in a minute. But I want to tell you that he is a program director of an esteemed Hemonk Fellowship Program and is just really here to give us insights that can help fellows succeed in the fellow-to-faculty transition. So without further ado, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. Alfred, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Joyce. I'm really honored to, to be here. And, and it, it's exciting what you're doing with this podcast and the conversations that, that you're having. So you know, so once again, my name is Alfred Lee. I'm a classical hematologist. And as, as you know, because we're in the same field, that is the focus of the focus of study is on blood diseases that are not cancer primarily. And I also have a, a big focus in medical education. And with it, issues of, of mentorship and career development come up naturally in my role as a fellowship program director. Thank you, Alfred. I want to thank you so much for being here because I feel like we, we need so much of your perspective. And, and I think fellows need that too. And, 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 and without further ado, I'm going to ask you just, you've been doing this for a while. And, and I want to ask how, how can fellows set themselves up for success as clinician scientists? We talk about that this, you know, having people become clinician scientists as the Holy grail. And, and it seems to be really hard. How can fellows set themselves up to win? Yeah. So uh, this is in many ways, one of many million dollar question. And I think all of us, um, particularly, you know, those of us who do medical education primarily are, are really invested in trying to understand, first off, how we identify um, the, the fellows who really want academic careers and, and are committed to this and will do well in academic careers. And then secondly, how do we get them there? And then thirdly, how do we ensure that when they leave the nest out of fellowship, that they'll be positioned to continue to have success in their academic careers? So, you know, the, the thing we've always said, and I think most of the, the literature, certainly outside of hematology, but emerging within hematology says is that it's all about mentorship, right? Mentorship, 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 mentorship is, is key. You know, having a good research project during fellowship is also key because that's really where trainees learn their, their chops, so to speak, and learn the methodologies that they need when they enter in these you know, what we like to call career defining projects within fellowship that will then, you know, hopefully lead to, to pathways in academic medicine after they finish. But oftentimes, and usually the, the good projects come with good mentorship setups. And, and so I think as a result of that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion lately about what good mentorship is and what the elements are there. As you may know, you know, Ash, American Society of Hematology, like recently did a big mentorship summit. Um, in DC headquarters that a number of us were, were part of. 
And the, the roots of this came from, you know, a study that, that we all sort of participated in, which was looking at, at the hematology workforce in the U.S. for over a several year period. And what we found leading up to the pandemic and then afterwards was that, you know, the, the numbers and the percentages of fellows in hema programs who wanted to do classical hematology was horrifically low. It was like 5% and it did not change in like 20 years. And so Ash started doing a lot of initiatives to try to, to improve recruitment and retention in classical hematology. And with that came this idea of, of trying to get a bunch of minds together to talk about mentorship. And so, so there was a, a, some very interesting things that, that came out of that discussion recently that, that are probably relevant to, to some of what you, know, you and I can discuss. So one is that mentorship, and this is built based on the literature and also on, on practice, mentorship has both a career development function and a psychosocial function. And, you know, I think in academic medicine, we often emphasize the former a lot, right? We tell people, yeah, you got to find a research mentor, get in with them, get on their projects, you know, start to build your projects, apply for your grants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's important not to overlook the psychosocial support function because one, you know, you, you can't really have a great mentorship setup unless both of these, these domains are, are being satisfied because that's where I think we see fellows have the, the greatest success long-term. A second thing that sort of emerged from this, this recent mentorship summit that Ash conducted was that although we still emphasize a lot the traditional diet of mentorship, so, you know, one mentee and one mentor, increasingly, I think a lot of fields outside of hematology are sort of looking at mentorship networks. So you, you bring in different faculty and, and different role models from the peer stage all the way to the, the faculty and, and beyond who can sort of be part of your whole mentorship tree and help you, you know, succeed. And then I, I think just one more thing I, I think that's important to, to think about, and it again plays in this whole aspect of mentorship, is that you know, we, we have a lot, we put a lot of emphasis on discussion about finding a good mentor and what the qualities are in a good mentor, and that's sort of its, its own discussion. But I think we also don't emphasize enough that in order for good mentorship to work, it has to be a two-way street. It's, it's really a relationship, right? And in, in order for any relationship to succeed, both parties or all parties have to be equally invested. And so there's a certain component, I think, of, of success as a trainee that then carries over in the, the post-trainee uh, realm. And that's that the, the mentees also need to learn how to be good mentees, right? They need to, to learn, you know, what are or how, what, what is their role in the relationship and what do they need to bring to the table and what kind of work do they sort of need to do on their own? in order to gain the skills they need to be successful during fellowship for their future academic careers. So, you know, I think the short answer to your question is mentorship, 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 but how we get there, I think has a lot of nuance and it's, it's very exciting, but also challenging to think about how we can improve that whole experience for the training. I love that. Thank you so much. Cause you, you talked about so many things. I think, I think one of the things that, that, that really spoke to me was about the psychosocial component of mentoring and, and it, you may get great academic mentoring, but that, that piece is missing. Then fellows may feel like they're not even getting what they want to, even though they may be getting great academic development. And so that, that's so important. I love also what you talk about with the, the, the whole focus on the diet of the mentoring um, relationship, but really thinking about mentoring networks. And, and it's, it's kind of, it's not traditional. It's that we've thought about mentoring in the traditional way, as you talked about, of like a one, one mentor, one mentee. And so how do, how do we get out of that? Like, how do we encourage fellows to start thinking about these networks? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I have to be totally candid. When, when I was exposed to this idea of mentorship networks, it was actually a very new concept to me. 
You know, when I was a fellow, so it, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but it actually was kind of a long time ago, but it was like 15 years ago. Um, I used to tell people I have three mentors, right? I, I literally say this all the time. So one mentor was the person I did my research with. And then the second mentor was the person I wanted to be, right? And then the third mentor was the person that I would gab on the phone with for like two hours every week and just tell this person my deepest, darkest secrets and what I wanted to do and, and get their advice, right? And, but, but in the midst of that, I always knew the, the, the responsibilities that each one had. And, and I did view one of them as, as not more important than the other, but, but one of them, I, I really, if I had to put my money down, I would say was my true primary mentor. And by that, what I meant is I had full faith that if I succeeded, this person would feel that they succeeded. And if I failed, then they would feel like they failed, right? So the reason I say that is to, to say that I think when we think about mentorship networks, a few things come to mind. So one is that you know, it's, it's important for trainees to think about all the different domains that they need in mentorship, right? So, so there is going to be someone or, or some people who fill that traditional research domain, but there are also going to be people who fill that role modeling domain. And then there are going to be some who fulfill, you know, sort of the life advice domain, right? Sort of mirroring the three different domains that were important to, to me. But a second aspect to this is that I think it's still important. And, and what I'm about to say, I think is a little bit controversial still, so not everybody agrees with me on this, but I, I still think it's important, even as we expand um, mentorship networks and go away from the traditional diet, I still think it is important to identify at least one person who, who really breathes and dies by you. I, I think that's important because you know what people have always said, and I think there's some truth to this, is that um, if you have a group of mentors, if you have dual mentors, if you have you know, triple mentors, it's great because everyone fills different functions, but at the end of the day, if no one feels accountable for you, then that's not a good setup either, right? And maybe that's where some of the psychosocial portion of this comes in. So it's a long, long winded way of saying that I, I think part of moving away from the diet into a mentorship network is to identify the needs that, that specific mentees require. But I think another portion of it is to still remember though that effective mentorship still needs someone senior to deliver. And if you lose that, then you kind of lose the, the most, one of the most important essences of mentorship, I think. No, that's really awesome. And thank you for shedding light on that. I mean, I think, I think it is so important. It's that every mentee has different aspects of their lives. And so to think that one person is going to be able to meet all those needs is a little bit unrealistic and maybe too much of an expectation for one person. But I want to go back to something you talked about, and that is about the mentee needing to be ready to be a good mentee. How do fellows learn to be great mentees? Where do they get that education? And, and what are some insights you would give us to what, what does a great mentee look like? Yeah, th this is a great, great question. And, you know, part of it is, is that in, you know, real world terms, as, as you know, as all of us in academic medicine and education know, there's a huge hidden curriculum that we don't teach anybody, but people just pick up and it, it's the same everywhere, right? So how do trainees, how do fellows learn to be good mentees? They learn by talking to their, their other co-fellows and former graduates and sort of young junior faculty. And they, they learn sort of the, the skills and the life patterns and they pick those up from, from other stories. And then they internalize them. And on the one hand, I think it's great that this sort of hidden curriculum evolves organically because then you know most fellows end up learning what is required to be a good mentee. But the truth is that I, I think we do a big disservice to a huge portion of our fellows by not teaching them in a formal fashion 
what is mentorship and what are your expectations, you know, as a mentee, right? And, and again, as, as you, you know, we were saying a little bit earlier, I think we all know the expectations of mentors, right? The mentors, you know, should be people who are seasoned in their research or at least very effective at their research. They're good at analyzing and, and giving advice, but there's a lot of soft skills in mentorship too that mentors should have, right? They should be accessible. They should be personable. They should care about you, right? They should make you feel like you're valued. But on the mentee end, even though we don't talk about it, I think the, the skills that people identify that, that come through with good mentees are, number one, um, good mentees need to be invested in the process of mentorship. They need to know when to take initiative, you know, to, to move projects forward and to move conversations forward. They need to be responsible. They need to feel a sense of responsibility for, for both the projects they're working on and also the relationship. They also need to be committed to developing the relationship and the project. I think what we sometimes see, and it's not really anyone's fault, obviously, but what we sometimes see uh, in unsuccessful mentee-mentor pairings is that um, one person is just not as invested as the other. And although frequently it is, it ends up being a mentor that's not invested, a lot of times it ends up being a mentee that has sort of unrealistic expectations. So sometimes a mentee will enter into a relationship with a very well-established and reputable mentor, but then walk away with, with sort of, quote unquote, nothing to show, right? No research out productivity, no, no papers, no grants, nothing, and, and no real life advice. But sometimes it's, it's because the mentee sort of thought that everything would be handed on a platter because this mentor is so well-seasoned and, and well-regarded. You know, but instead, in order to make that relationship work, maybe the mentee had to sit down with the mentor and learn what, what's expected of me, what's my role, what part do I need to, to sort of do in order to build this relationship and the project. So I, I think you're right. As, as much as we talk about mentors having expectations, mentees also need to have the same expectations of themselves, even though they differ. Thank you for talking about the hidden curriculum. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. And, and you know what's interesting? For, for many people who are self-aware, they're able to master the hidden curriculum, not to, and not in, in short order, but people do struggle with the hidden curriculum. I, I wonder, and, and this is kind of like really asking for your opinion, how do we make the hidden curriculum more explicit? Yeah. And, you know, this is such a fun question to ask, because if we, if we look at, you know, what comes out of the hidden curriculum, right? Or, you know, first off, what is the hidden curriculum? It's the stuff we don't teach that everyone sees and knows and internalizes. And some of the hidden curriculum is very, very bad, right? That, that's where we all learn bias. That's unconscious bias, right? That, that's contributed to so many things that, that we're trying to now combat actively. But some of the hidden curriculum is really good, you know? And as an example, I would say near peer mentorship is one of these concepts, right? That's emerging now where anyone at any point in the training pathway and beyond can identify someone who's just a little bit senior, who is reliable and who's doing things that the mentee wants to do and can impart those same sort of life skills. So I think the hidden curriculum includes some good aspects like near peer mentorship. And so in terms of how do we, we optimize the hidden curriculum and, and make it you know, a formal curriculum, part of it is, is of course introducing mentees early on to these sorts of concepts. But I think part of it is also adopting some of these organic structures and seeing if they can benefit from sort of an institutional or a systemic structure. So as, a, as an example, right, in our fellowship program, and I think many other fellowship programs as, as well, you know, we sort of recognize that the fellows, when they come in, are going to latch on to the, the second year fellows and the third year fellows. So, you know, every fellow in our program and many others, too, will get like a buddy system, right? 
And the buddy is initially supposed to just help the, the first year fellows get acquainted with fellowship and then sort of go through the nuts and bolts. But a lot of times the buddy system ends up delving into issues of, of real life and also research, you know, mentorship and, and so forth. You know, some of the fellows have reached out to their buddy to, to talk about starting a new family. You know, where do they, they get support for this? Where do they get childcare? You know, how do they find a mentor? You know, who's a good mentor? And so I think, you know, we, we were doing this sort of buddy system for a long time without even realizing that it actually is near peer mentoring. And I think things like that, it's worth asking the question, do we want to take something like that and actually make it a formal thing? Or do we value the organic nature of it that, that we have to find the right balance of where that we, as a program, we don't overstep and make something that's organic and wonderful into something that's very bureaucratic. I think that that's sort of the, the trick here to try to make these, the, these bits of the informal curriculum better. No, that's a, it's a really great point because the organic nature of it kind of helps it to be a safe environment where people feel like they can ask these personal questions and, 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 and turn it into a bureaucratic thing. They, they change the nature of it and maybe it won't be as helpful. Um, so there's definitely a fine balance. But, but really, I think one of the points that I feel like is so important that you make that I want to just reiterate is just peer mentoring is important. And that people, as they're thinking about mentoring or mentorship networks, they should be thinking about peers as part of that network as well. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you want to speak more about that? Yeah, no, and, and you know, I, I think um, what, what you were saying, Tosi, is, is so important nowadays um, because uh, along these same lines, we're actually just having discussions about this at, at our institution. Along the same lines, we're starting to have discussions that um, senior fellows and faculty need to be lumped together and viewed the same, right? And, and I know this is a little bit of a controversial concept and not everyone at our medical center necessarily agrees, but this is literally fresh in our minds. And I've heard a lot of senior you know, leadership sort of talk about this idea. And, and the more I think about it, the more I feel like it, it actually makes sense. Um, you know, because again, for, for academic fellowship programs that are training largely academic physicians, um, even though we, we have this true barrier and crossover between being a trainee versus being an attending physician, the, the career development arc starts early. It starts in fellowship. And the elements of success within fellowship end up laying the groundwork for later success as a young faculty member. And so I, I, I do feel that, that you know, fellow senior fellows and junior faculty probably do represent the same continuum and need to be thought of similarly with the same sort of uh, support structures. And I think part of that then is this concept of near peer mentoring, because when you're a fellow, you know, in your June, in your like first year or second year or so forth, you look to the senior fellows, right? And then when you transition to faculty, you start to look to your, your peer faculty and some of the younger faculty, right? You know, most of us, when we're junior faculty, we're not going to immediately go to our chair with like every single problem we, we have and, and talk to them for, for advice. We're going to go to our colleagues, the ones who have been at our institution for just a little bit longer and sort of, of reach out to them and, and get their insights. So I think the, the near peer mentoring approach, which is so important and, and begins in fellowship, is the same thing that transitions when one goes into a junior faculty role. And we should probably be thinking about these as one continuum. It's definitely an important one to have. I love what you were talking about. And, and, I, and I actually want to take a step back and just talk about who succeeds in this clinician scientist thing, right? We bring so many people through and we talked about earlier, it's 50-50. But can if you could go back and look at your fellows at the beginning or, or even at any time during the program, who succeeds? Yeah, so uh, this is a loaded question. Everything you're asking is loaded and so important. And I, I'm glad that we're dissecting this because I, I, I feel, and I, I'm assuming that you do too, 
and others in active medicine that the definition of this is dramatically changing as it needs to, right? So, I mean, as, as you know, because we all sort of went through this together, historically, the idea was that if you're in a, a fellow in an academic program, then you're going to go for an academic job. And what is an academic job? It's basically emerging as a clinician investigator or as an investigator of some type, clinician investigator or lab investigator, right? And it used to be that everyone was both a clinician and a lab investigator, then they sort of diverged and, and you know, both became sort of equally valid. But you know, with the complexity of medicine now, with real issues in the pipeline of, of recruitment and retention, with real issues of you know, not having, having a, actually a pitifully low number of underrepresented minorities in, in throughout academic medicine, especially in, in hematology, with real issues of access to care, you know, so many patients not having access to a physician, much less one who specializes in the treatments that we do. I think the old paradigms have to completely come tumbling down. And as a result, it makes it both really difficult, but also really exciting to try to redefine what it means to be successful, right? So as an example, you know, in the olden days, if a fellow um, tried to go into a lab, you know, maybe when you and I were in fellowship, if a fellow tried to go into a lab and, and didn't, you know, publish their nature paper or their cell paper, you know, then that, that's a failure, right? But nowadays that, that might not be, right? Because, you know, we have fellows who come into our program like extremely well-versed and experienced in basic science research. And then when they go through fellowship, either they, they fall in love with something else or they fall in love with patient care or their project just doesn't work out, but they realize that all the skills they learned in the lab are actually really useful and can be morphed into say phase one trials or clinical trials, right? Or explaining these sorts of very complex therapies to patients who ordinarily wouldn't have access to a trial, but they, the fellow, you know, the trainee then becomes a facilitator to, to help promote health equity and access, right? So I think now the, the definition doesn't really exist the way that it did before. And, and so, and it gets back to sort of, you know, the domains of mentorship. There's, there's a, a career development portion, but there's also a psychosocial portion. And I, I would say the same thing about our overall career development in general, right? There are certain, you know, benchmarks that we all set for ourselves and we try to achieve them. And sometimes we do, and sometimes they don't, but there's also a, a personal sense of satisfaction and destiny even and fulfillment. And I think those are things that, um, although we, we expect fellows, even while they're interviewing for our program to know in reality, they don't know. And many times they don't know until very late in their training and sometimes beyond. And so it's a long-winded way of saying that I don't know what the right definition is, but I, I think we have to take into account overall life experiences and constantly ask our fellows and encourage them to ask themselves, are you happy? Are you doing what you want? Do you feel like your purpose is being served? Because I think if we include those elements into traditional benchmarks of success, then we'll find that, that number one, we're actually doing a good job overall, all of our, our programs are and all of our fellows are. And then number two, I think we'll also find that that's, that's improving the overall experience of healthcare for everyone. I love it. So it's expanding the definition of success. And the truth is that the definition of success was always expanded. But as long as we were defining it narrowly, we could find the fellows who succeeded and those who didn't. And so, so I, I do love what you talk about because fulfillment is important in the psychosocial aspects as well. And that at the end, the, the program thinks the fellow is successful, but the fellow thinks the fellow is successful as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, even like, like operationally at the institutional level, right? 
again, even though we, we kind of have historically had this idea that there are academic physicians and then there are, are clinicians, right? Um, and the academic physicians are the ones who do some type of research and the clinicians see patients. I mean, you know, as we all know in oncology and also in hematology, a, a huge part of what we do is ambulatory care in the community, right? And within oncology and malignant hematology, and, and even to a certain extent in classical hematology, a lot of the clinical trials enrollments are happening in the community with community physicians, right? And then even at academic centers, you know, we're all recognizing that there's a tremendous need for pure clinicians within academic centers, especially in classical hematology, right? I, I'm, I'm sure Duke is the same way in many other places, but you know, at, at Yale, all across our, our cancer center network, 50% of the volume of, of patients that are seen by, by attending physicians is classical heme patients, right? And every center has that. And so we have a real need for not just researchers in classical heme, but also clinicians, right? We're super excited because we actually just hired one of our, our senior fellows to be a pure classical hematology clinician, but, but you know, with an academic appointment you know, on, on our academic clinician track. And I think, and, and basically I just say that to say that I, I think that these definitions of fellow success are going hand in hand. These redefinitions of fellow success are going hand in hand with redefining what it means to be an academic clinician and, an, and even an academic investigator. I appreciate that perspective. Thank you. It's, it's that so much is changing. And I think in medicine, sometimes we're slow to change, but ultimately the reality is that we're, we're preparing the fellows for the new world that they're entering. And the new world they're entering is a different one that, that we entered 12, 13, 14 years ago. I, I love how you said that, because that, that's exactly what it is. And I think we have to keep reminding ourselves that this sort of redefinition and reassessment and change is good because we, we need it, because that's what our patients need. That's what the field of science needs, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. You shared so many great gems. I would say that as we're wrapping up, what, what is one thing you want to leave with our listeners? What, what, what do you want to say that perhaps needs to be emphasized or hasn't been said yet? Let's see. What, what should we emphasize? So mentorship still, to me, remains the most important aspect, even though the definitions of mentorship are changing. I think we need to think about ways to formalize a lot of the organic nature of mentorship, kind of like you and I talked about, while still preserving some of the serendipity that can happen with a good mentorship pairing. And I think we're all sort of struggling with how to do that. You know, a lot of programs, including our own, you know, create mentorship committees, right? When fellows come in, they get paired to faculty for career development advice. And sometimes those pairings work, sometimes they don't. But we also know that when we remove that from the equation, then suddenly the fellows want it. And it's the same for the junior faculty. So how do you create these structures, but then allow for the flexibility for that organic nature to, to happen, I think is, is important. I think another thing that we need to think about, and again, this, this ultimately goes back to, again, success of a fellow as an academic clinician afterwards, is how do we, and should we, and I think the answer is yes, but how do we and should we be in incentivizing faculty to mentor Right, because a lot of faculty take on mentorship just out of goodwill, and also because we we got met good mentors and we want to pay that back. But as medicine becomes more complex, as financial reimbursement models become, you know, increasingly a, a big driver in in academic hirings, even how do we start to systemically and institutionally incentivize mentorship so that all of us will want to be mentors and realize that. You know, when we invest in people the way they invested in us, then that's how we continue the field and, and we all benefit. 
So I, I think you know those are two concepts. Of course, they're, they're beyond our, our own discussion, but I think they tie back to what we can do to guarantee, or not guarantee, but, but increase the likelihood that our fellows will be successful. Because I think we have to not just invest in mentorship, but also invest in the future of mentorship, whatever that means. I love it. When you talk about the serendipity, it's almost like someone needs to come up with like a, a mentoring matchmaking service, kind of like dating services exist right now. Like create the structure and then watch for the chemistry. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You know, some of us have talked about like apps, right? Like, can we create an app that does this? I mean, you know, the traditional thing of, you know, asking around who's, you know, got research projects and then meeting with them and then you know, creating databases and, and notebooks and websites of, of you know, who, which faculty have research projects going on. I mean, it, it's basically evolving into a dating app. So yeah, I think we should just call it what it is and do it. <laughs> I agree. And thank you for your patience. I uh, have been having connection difficulties for everyone who's listening and, and wondering what all the positives are. But Alfred, thank you so much. You have been such, such it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You have such great insight. I feel like at some point I'm going to need to invite you back again so that we can talk about some more of the nuances of the mentoring and defining success because there's so much really to unpack. And, and I just want to thank you. You shared so much wisdom, so much insight. And, and I, I know our listeners will, will learn so much from it. Thank you so much, Rosie, and, and thank you for everything you've done in our field and also with, with this podcast and all the things you're doing now to sort of propel trainees and our whole field forward. Thank you. I, I think we have a shared goal, and, and so I, I'm glad to have you as a partner globally in, in this effort. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, everyone. You've heard Dr. Lee. He's talked a lot about things that fellows need to think about in terms of being successful. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please share it with somebody else. If you're a mentor who's listening, please share it with your mentees and ask them to share it with their peer mentors or their peers so that, so that more people can, can kind of learn a lot about the hidden curriculum and, and then continue to work towards their own success. All right, until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do.